You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. I'd like to invite Ian up now. Um, we're going to jump into uh, the sermon for today. Um, I think um, uh, we're, we're going through John 3.16 again, um, plus a little bit of other stuff as well on either side from what I can gather. But I think this is just a great testimony to how deep the scriptures are, how much can be pulled from um, a short passage and how, um, particularly a passage like John 3.16, which is so well known it has reason to be well known because it just impacts so much of our Christian walk and our Christian faith. Um, and so, yeah, we'll just uplift Ian in prayer now um, as he gets set up. Lord, um, thank you for the word you've placed in Ian's heart and thank you for uh, the word that um, you've given him to impart to us through your word. Um, we just pray that... Um, the words of you and your spirit would rest deeply in our hearts and convict us, encourage us, build us up. Uh, and anything that's not of you would just fall to the ground and uh, would be lost and forgotten. Um, yeah, may we uh, wrestle today with uh, what it is that you're trying to say to us through John 3.16. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Thanks, Harley. Morning, everybody. Um, as Harley said, we'll be back in John chapter 3, so if you've got your Bibles ready, you can uh, get opened up to John 3 verse 7, which is where we'll be starting. But, um, before we actually read the scriptures, cricket fans will all have opinions this week about Dave Warner's high score of 355 not out in the test this week. He overtook the great Don Bradman's record score. Oh, actually, not a record score, but Don Bradman's highest ever score. And uh, the Don is considered the greatest cricketer ever to come out of Australia, possibly out of the world. And uh, Don, uh, Dave Warner was on track to set a new world record knock when the Aussies declared. So should he have been allowed to bat on and potentially break the record and set a new record. I believe the record is 380. Um, he could have potentially set a new one. Should they? Uh, should have been allowed to break the Don's record in the first time? That's one of the questions that people have been asking this week. And we'll never know whether he would have been able to set that new record if they'd let him bat on. But I'm sure you all have opinions about whether we should continue in John 3.16 as well? <laughs> or is it time to declare and move on to the next verse? This is the fourth week we've been looking at this one single verse. A couple more weeks might see a new world record. Should we bat on? Some of you are probably thinking, though, we've been here for long enough. Let's declare and get on with it. So you'll be pleased to know this is our last week in John 3.16. But it really, it shouldn't be a surprise that we could spend so much time just in this one verse. We've talked so many times about how deep and how profound John's gospel is. 
Martin Luther said that John 3.16 is the Bible in miniature. He's correct. I believe he is absolutely correct. The story of the whole Bible is the story of God, of man, of sin, and of salvation from sin. And John 3.16 contains all of that in one brief verse. No wonder it's beloved of Christians the world over. No wonder it's the most famous verse in the Bible. So over the last several weeks, we've been pulling it apart bit by bit, word by word. And one of the things we've seen during that is the greatness of God's love for humanity. God's love is great in its intensity. It is far stronger, far more powerful than anything any of us could muster up. God's love is great in its breadth. It encompasses all of rebellious humanity. God's love is great in its cost. It costs the life of the only perfect man who ever lived, the Son of God himself. God's love is great in its effect, bringing eternal life to all who would believe, without exception. We've also discovered that God's love is not some sloppy sentimentalism and it's not an emotional buzz like a teenage boy might get with his first crush. God's love is not changeable. God's love doesn't change with his emotional state. God's love is fierce. It is powerful. It's not to be messed with. God's love is active. His love does. It doesn't just talk or feel. His love does. And we know that his love is directed towards the human race. Real men, real women, real children. But the human race that's in rebellion against him. By birth and by nature, we are his enemies. We're not his friends the way we are by birth, by nature and by activity. We're not his friends. We all deserve punishment and death for our sin and rebellion. And despite our enmity, he chooses to extend his love to us. That is a staggering thought that we could be the greatest enemies of God. We are greater enemies of God than Satan. And yet he chooses to extend his love to us. That's counterintuitive. That doesn't make sense. But not only does he extend his loves to us, he provides the solution to our rebellion and our sin by his sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ. This then raises questions of its own. If God's love is that great, if it's in fact infinite as we claim it is, won't everybody be saved? Surely everybody would be saved. How can the God who loves this much possibly condemn anyone to eternal hell, to eternal punishment? So let's begin by refreshing our memories by reading John 3.16 in context, starting from verse 7. Can I encourage you uh, to bring a paper Bible, if you still own one, to church? The... uh, 
Electronic versions are fantastic. They're very portable. They go anywhere. It's easy to search and all that sort of thing. But there's nothing quite like a paper Bible to give you the bigger context and nothing quite like the sound of paper rustling to encourage a preacher. (laughs) Because it tells me you're following along and not checking your Facebook messages. John 3, starting in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through him the world might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Mel and I were at a party a few months ago, and I got to talking to a friend that I haven't seen for some years. We used to go to the same church a number of years ago and he was one of the leaders of that church. And he's been a Christian for many, many years, for decades in fact, so he wasn't exactly new to the faith. But as he was talking, he said to me, the older I get, the more I'm becoming a universalist. Now that took me by surprise. I knew he'd experienced some ups and downs in his Christian walk, as we all do, but I thought he was basically pretty solid in his faith. And John 3.16 is one of those verses that universalists look to to support their belief that God will eventually save everyone. That's what universalism is, if you're not familiar with the term. It's the belief that everyone will be saved, without exception, everyone. Everyone will eventually be in heaven. No one ultimately will be condemned to hell or not condemned forever at least. Some universalists believe that everyone goes into heaven immediately when they die. Others believe that there's some form of punishment, a purgatory, if you like, that they have to go through, but they will eventually get to heaven. So there's a few different flavours of it, but it's the gist of universalism is that God is love, and if God is love, then God will save everybody. He would never condemn anybody. Now, it's easy for us to conclude that exactly that, maybe, because we've spent so much time 
looking at God's infinite love. And I've talked this morning about how powerful it is, how broad it is, how costly it was to God. If God is infinite love, then why won't he be saving everybody? John's pretty clear. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But it would be a mistake to believe that. I'm not sure if you would call it a heresy. There are plenty who do consider universalism to be a heresy. A heresy is a false teaching that leads people to destruction, spiritual destruction. Maybe it is. It's certainly a serious mistake. It affects how we see God. It affects how we view our own sin. It affects whether we think we should be conducting evangelism even. Someone has said that universalism isn't just a theological mistake, it is a symptom of deeper problems. Let's face it, none of us really want people to go to hell, do we? Unless maybe Adolf Hitler, Joseph Coney, serial killers, pedophiles, maybe them. But universalism says that even they will be saved. It's the way we want the world to be. Because we don't really want anyone to suffer, except, of course, the people that do bad things to us. They can suffer. (laughs) Kevin DeYoung also has a warning for us about universalism. He says, universalism is the last rung for evangelicals falling off the ladder into liberalism and unbelief. That's my fear for my friend. He is on that last rung of the ladder of faith and about to step off into unbelief. There's a related error of annihilationism, it's called. The belief that the wicked will be punished, but they won't be sent to hell for eternity. They will just be destroyed and cease to exist entirely. Both ideas are out of touch with the biblical evidence. Both of them are just extensions of our own wishful thinking. And dare I say it, both of them are a sign of our own arrogance that we're more loving and merciful than God. Universalism is nothing new. In fact, there have been universalists from the earliest days of human history, would you believe? Universalists believe one of the very first promises ever made in the Bible. But I suspect they would be horrified if they realised that that's the promise they were believing. But this particular promise wasn't made by God. This one was made by the devil, by the serpent, in the Garden of Eden. This one was made by one who was a liar from the beginning and the father of lies. This promise is in direct opposition to God's promise and you'll find in Genesis chapter 3. Human history doesn't go back very much further than this. Genesis 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now we all know, we've read it, that he didn't actually say you can't touch it. He just said, you can't eat of it. That's academic, really. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. God's promise and God's warning is that disobedience leads to death. That's the first promise in the Bible where God said, don't eat that fruit or you will die. The second promise came hot on the heels of the first one. But the second one was a lying promise. The second one was a promise that unbelief will have no consequences. It's a promise that disobedience doesn't bring death. It's been Satan's strategy ever since the Garden of Eden. He would say, you don't have to believe God's word. There's no consequences if you don't believe. You won't be punished if you reject God. There's no real penalty for sin. That's the liar's promise. It's unchanged to to this day. His promise to this day is unbelief is a safe option for us. In fact, unbelief is the choice of thinking people, sophisticated people, intelligent people. Now, the devil's promise was a bold promise considering he didn't have a single argument to support his claim. But that's how the devil operates, isn't it? Lies and deception. The arguments that the universalists have are just as empty as the devil's promise. Satan's strategy never changes. And his promise is just as hollow today as it was then in the garden. He promises that unbelief is a safe option or a smart option. And we all like that option because it takes pressure off us, doesn't it? We choose to believe that surely no one will die. It's a terrible option, but it's the one we prefer because it sounds so nice. It sounds so comfortable. It sounds so loving. John 3.16 was written to tell us otherwise. John 3.16 was written to stir us to take the good option of belief, the right option, belief that leads to eternal life rather than the bad option of unbelief that leads to eternal death. And yet unbelief is still what most of the world chooses. According to John 3.16, belief, that is faith, leads to salvation and eternal life. But unbelief by implication leads to destruction. We see that pattern all the way through scripture, unbelief leading to destruction. We've just seen it in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. They chose not to believe God's promise and God's warning of death for disobedience. And their unbelief has led to our death ever since. All of Adam and Eve's descendants suffer death because of Adam and Eve's unbelief of God's promise and belief in the devil's promise. We see unbelief in Noah's day. Noah pleaded for 120 years for the people to repent and turn to God. But they chose not to. They chose to believe the lie. We will not surely die. And the Lord sent the flood and the whole world 
surely died. All except Noah and his family, eight of them, survived because they believed the promise of God, not the promise of the enemy. Unbelief led to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, to the death of Lot's sons-in-law. They ignored God's warning about coming, the coming judgment on the Twin Cities and they refused to leave. Instead, they believed the lie that you will surely not die. Unbelief brought about the death of every firstborn son in Egypt when Moses demanded that Pharaoh let the people go. Pharaoh refused. And God sent his punishment. Pharaoh believed we will not surely die, but every firstborn son throughout the land died, except those who believed God's promise. You know, the devil even tried the same strategy on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When he came to Jesus to tempt him in the wilderness, the final temptation was for Jesus to believe the lie that you will not surely die. The devil said, throw yourself off the top of the temple, for angels will surely catch you. You will not surely die. Unbelief only and always leads to destruction. Where in scripture or where in our life experience do we see otherwise? You won't find it. You won't find it anywhere in scripture that unbelief leads to life. The lie persists to this day, though, that you will not surely die. John wrote this gospel, he tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John doesn't just intend us to believe once and then put our belief on the back burner. He intends us to go on believing, to believe every day of our lives. The saving faith, faith that avoids eternal punishment and death, is a faith that continues to believe. I fear for my friend whose faith is not continuing to believe. That's the reason why I call on you week after week after week to put your trust in him. I probably sound like a broken record to some of you. I don't think a week goes by where I don't call on you to put your trust in Jesus Christ. But faith must continue. It's the most important decision we can make in our lives. It's far more important than what job to pursue. Far more important than who to marry or where to live or how to have our best life now. The most important thing we can do with our life is to put our trust in Jesus Christ and to go on putting our trust in Jesus Christ. Day after day after day, his mercies are new every morning for us. James says, even the demons believe in God. But they believe and they tremble, it tells us. And they tremble because they know the reality of God's judgment on their sin. They know the reality of the punishment they're facing. You remember Jesus confronting them, the demons cried out, Matthew 8, 29, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know the time is coming. 
The demons believe in hell and punishment, but we don't want to. The rich man believed the lie that you will not surely die, right up until he and Lazarus both died. Then he saw through the devil's lie. Then there was no turning back. Every person who has ever lived and died in unbelief now knows that the devil was lying. Revelation tells us that the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. A day of judgment is coming for the devil and his demons and for all who die in unbelief. Revelation 20, if you happen to have your Bibles handy, Revelation 20 verse 10, almost at the very end of the Bible. And through the 15 tells us the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented the devil and the beast and the false prophet will be tormented day and night forever and ever then verse 11 I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them Do you realise who it was that was sitting on that throne? It's the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, sitting on the throne in judgement. goes on, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. J.C. Ryle wrote 150 odd years ago that if a man will not put faith in Christ, he places himself outside of the reach of mercy. J.C. Ryle was spot on. If you will not put your faith in Christ, you are out of the reach of mercy. Unbelief is the default position of all humanity. Unbelief was our default position before God changed our hearts, before he gave us a new and right spirit, before his mercy granted us new birth. Now, I haven't touched on all the warnings and all the promises in the New Testament about destruction for sin, because every warning is a promise. Every time the Lord warned that we would suffer punishment for sin. It's a promise that we will suffer punishment for sin. God's promise even in the New Testament isn't you will not surely die. Rather, God's promise and God's warning is that sin has consequences. Eternal consequences. Thinking happy thoughts won't help. Sending good wishes to another person won't help. Nice sounding stuff, lovely sounding stuff, totally useless. God is love, for sure, God is love. 
when people look at Jesus Christ and think he is the most loving, the nicest, the most forgiving person they could imagine, and they're exactly right, he is exactly that. He is the most loving person who ever walked the face of the earth. But he is also the one who talked the most about hell, about death, about eternal punishment. You might imagine that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, knows what he's talking about. You might wonder also why I spend so much time bringing gloom and doom in the midst of a passage that tells us how great God's love is. But I'd be doing you no favours if I didn't tell you about the warnings. If I were to suggest to you that your sin doesn't matter, that you could go on rejecting God and doing whatever you like and still expect to avoid punishment, I'd do you no favours. In fact, I would be preaching the devil's lie, that you will not surely die. That would be the most unloving thing I could possibly do. Universalism can't be found in the Bible, not by anyone who takes the Bible seriously. It's only wishful thinking that makes us believe the lie that you will not surely die. So what's the alternative then? Rather than the lie of the devil that says you will not surely die, God's promise is that you will surely die. Sin has consequences that are unavoidable. I've said it and said it and said it in this message already. But he provides the solution. The Lord provides the solution, the way of escape. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here precisely lies the solution to sin. Here lies the real promise that you will not surely die. God gave his only son to pay the penalty for our sin and our unbelief. When Jesus was lifted up on that cross in the sight of the nation, he was taking on the penalty for sin on our behalf. This is the evidence that God so loved the world that he would allow his son, his perfect son, his sinless son, to be punished in our place so that we could receive mercy and forgiveness instead, that we could receive eternal life. Jesus dying on the cross isn't the reason why God loves us, It's the proof that God loves us. When the New Testament talks about eternal life, it uses the same word, Greek word aeonios, from which we get the English word eon, for both life and death. One of the reasons why it's important that we understand that the punishment for unbelief is eternal in length is because it's so closely tied to eternal life. One of the clearest passages about this is found in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus is talking about people not welcoming the stranger, not feeding the hungry, not visiting the prisoner. And he finishes his rebuke, verse 45, chapter 25, verse 45. He finishes the rebuke by saying, 
Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, aeonios punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, aeonios life. He uses the exact same word for eternal life and eternal punishment. If the punishment's not eternal, then neither's the life. And yet we Christians all look forward to eternal life. It's one of the things that we're all looking for when we die is that life and blessing and peace and everything else is eternal, not just that we cease to exist. We can't have it both ways and still claim to believe the Bible. So what is eternal life? Everlasting life, as some of the translations put it. John's Gospel talks about eternal life a lot. It's one of his major themes. When John and the Bible speaks about eternal life, it means more than just everlasting. It does mean everlasting. It does mean without an end in time. But it doesn't just mean the length or the quantity. It means the quality as well. When the Bible speaks about eternal life, It implies that eternal life begins at the moment of faith and it never ends. So from the moment you put your trust in Christ, your eternal life began. You can live another hundred years beyond that, but your eternal life began then. You have it now. It's more than just an endless existence into the future. It's partaking of the divine life here and now. Now experience might suggest otherwise. You might have had nothing but problems, opposition, sickness, struggle since you believed. What quality of life is that? Some in fact turn their faith, their back on their faith because of the troubles they experience. They conclude either that God doesn't keep his promises or doesn't love them or they decide that the whole thing is just a sick joke. We heard of someone recently threatening to tell God off, to tear strips off of him because of the way he'd treated one of their loved ones. As if you can tear strips off of God. (laughs) But strangely, God's never promised to make life easy for us. Have you noticed that when you read your Bible? In fact, Jesus tells us the opposite. He tells us they will kill you for following me. He's never promised to make life easy. He's never promised to make us healthy or wealthy or problem-free. That's not his great goal for us. His goal is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And part of the process of conforming us is trouble and persecution, and grief and loss, as we heard this morning. Some of the pain never goes away, but it's part of God's process of conforming us to the image of his son. None of us look forward to trouble and persecution, but we don't need to fear it either. Romans 8.28, you hear me quote this a lot, because this has been a life-transforming verse for me. All things work together for for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. That means the good things. It means the bad things. 
It means the boring things. It means the confusing things. It means the monotonous things. It means the unexpected things. It means the undesirable things. And the difficult things. All things work together. Not in isolation. Work together for good for those who love God. I've seen that in my own life. Some of the most difficult times and experiences, and Tish testified this morning, one of the most painful times of her life has been one of the most precious in a way. It's actually been for benefit. Occasionally in my life it's been material blessings and things like that, but it's been far more in building my trust in God, deepening my faith and revealing to me his faithfulness. His faithfulness through all those times I'd had enough and wanted to turn my back. And he remained faithful and he dug that foundation a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper with every trouble. C.S. Lewis said words, I don't know the exact quote anymore, but words to the effect that one day everyone will look back at their life. Those who have entered into the eternal joy of heaven will see heaven extend right back through their life to their point of birth and even conception. Conversely, those who enter into eternal punishment will see hell extend all the way back through their life to conception and birth. Was C.S. Lewis right? We won't know for sure until we get the other side of this life. But I suspect he was. I think that's one of the things that Romans 8.28 implies to us. I think that's what John is saying in verse 18. Romans 8.28 said, All things work together for our good, conforming us to the image of Christ. John 3.18 tells us whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already in this life. Already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. When we look at our our life through the lens of faith and trust in God's promises such as Romans 8.28 it shapes our world view. It shapes our perspective on life. It shapes everything we think and do and how we react. It shapes our hope and our joy and our contentment in life. And it produces a quality of life that is totally independent of the problems we face. Because there is something, an undercurrent of hope and joy that underlies every struggle. I think Lewis might have been onto something when he said that. It's not fair, some people might complain. If God's able to save some people before they die, why can't he save them after they die? Why doesn't he just change the rules? But if God is the inventor of this game of life, as we know he is, surely he's entitled to set whatever rules he wants for this game to be played by. 
It's not as if God changes the rules on a whim or because he's in a bad mood or or just wants to have a bit of fun with us. Not like he changes the rules without notice and we never quite know how to play the game. The rules have never changed. And the rules are pretty simple. We're all sinners. Sin must be paid for. The penalty is death. But mankind can't pay that penalty and still survive to see God. So God sent his son to pay it on our behalf. And all it takes is a look. A look to the cross. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. All it takes is a look. The rules have never changed. It always and only takes a look to the cross. How hard is that? How difficult is it to look to the cross? Don't be, don't be fooled. There's no repentance after death. There's no faith to exercise in the grave. There's no conversion to Christ after you've drawn your final breath. God himself has provided the solution and provided the opportunity for us today. If you reject your off- his offer, you judge yourself guilty. You send yourself to hell and eternal punishment. That's not God's fault. That's yours, if that's your choice. Today is the day you're called to put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you're not saved by him today, it's because you will not come to him. It's not because he has missed out on doing something. He's done everything necessary to provide you with eternal life. Whoever believes will have eternal life. If you're not a believer when the final day comes, it's because you will not believe. And you'll also have no reason to complain about the punishment that you're facing. That's your choice. It will be the fitting result of your refusal to trust God's promise and to believe the devil's lie. But if you put your trust in him, you're secure. And you're secure for eternity. Jesus himself tells us later in John's Gospel, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 5.24 Whoever believes, that's present tense, has eternal life. That's still present tense. And has passed from death to eternal life. That's past tense. That's done. That's finished. That's happened. Has passed from death to life. Jesus also said, John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Who will? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
How secure could we possibly be? And what do we have to do? Look to the cross and believe. Do you want that sort of security? I sure hope you do. Do you want eternal life? There's much more involved in eternal life than what we've looked at this morning. haven't even scratched the surface of it. We've only touched very lightly on it as a present possession and experience. The Bible has a lot to say about what it is like on into eternity too. Eternal life means a life one day without pain, without suffering, without loss, without grief. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more struggle. No more death. That's eternal life. We have it as a present possession if we put our trust in Christ. But we have it as an eternal promise as well. Instead, there's eternal joy in the presence of the one who so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Trust in him this morning. Trust in him this morning. He will not reject anyone who looks to him in faith. If you don't know how to do that this morning, there's a room full of people that would take great delight in introducing you to their Saviour. Trust in him this morning. Father, we trust in you. We trust in your Son. We trust in your Holy Spirit this morning. God, you so loved us that you gave your Son. Lord, this morning we choose to believe and we choose to continue believing. We believe your promise, Lord, that we will die for our sin but your promise that we will never die. We trust in Jesus Christ who took the penalty for that sin. We reject the lie of the devil that says that we don't have to worry about the things we say, we do, what we believe. We choose instead, Lord, this morning with our trust only in you, your word that reveals you, your Holy Spirit that connects us with you. Lord, I pray for my friends here that if there are any who, whose heart have not yet been changed, who have not yet looked to the cross, that you would change them, you would open their eyes this morning, Lord, to the beauty of that old rugged cross. As brutal as it was, Lord, the evidence that you love. I pray that you'll open their eyes to that truth and that they will put their trust in Jesus Christ and never perish but have eternal life. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. In the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.